You're listening to Conversations with a Musicologist, with me, Alex Burns. Episode 3, Perceptions of Music. How do we listen to music? Do you like the live experience, or do you prefer listening in the comfort of your own home? Do you like to have programme notes, or would you rather just listen and make your own mind up? There's no one way of listening to music. Every individual will have a unique way of consuming music. Take film music, for example. How much do you listen to a soundtrack in a film? Would you listen to it more or less if you heard it being played live with a screen behind the orchestra? Would you listen to it differently if you go to a film music concert with just the music but without the screen? This podcast will be exploring various perceptions of music, starting with a catch-up with German specialist Freya Riding about November's Composer of the Month, Hans Zimmer. And so for this podcast, I'm joined by the very same German specialist, Freya Riding to talk all things German, including the music of Hans Zimmer and November's instalment of our German-speaking Musical Greats project. So thanks for joining me again, Freya. Let's talk about November's composer of the month, Hans Zimmer. So why did you pick him? I picked Hans Zimmer because he's one of my favourite film composers. I really enjoy the soundtracks that he's written for massive Hollywood blockbusters and also smaller films. And and we chose a real range of different soundtracks for this project, including um, works from Gladiator, Dunkirk, Pirates of the Caribbean and The Lion King. And which of these films do you like the best? Um, I really, really enjoy Dunkirk. I think it's a brilliant film. I also found it really interesting how Christopher Nolan chose to show um, the film from three different perspectives, so from the air, land and sea. Yes, I find it a really interesting film and the music is, is just as interesting. And when I listened to it for the first time properly, when I was writing my blog on it, um, I realised that a lot of it is synthesised. What do you think about his Hans Zimmer's use of traditional orchestra and synthesised instruments in the film? Yeah, I think his use of this blend is really, really effective, uh, particularly their use of Christopher Nolan's stopwatch. So they used his stopwatch to create a synthesised sound that accompanies the whole of the film. And this adds to uh, the intensity of the film very delicately, very subtly. Oh, it, absolutely. I, I remember reading about that. I found it really interesting. And it really opposes the other blog that you looked at for Gladiator, which is wholly traditional orchestra, um, lots of percussion, voices. And that, again, opposes the choices I chose, I suppose, with Lion King, with the African drumming and with the traditional kind of setup he has for Pirates of the Caribbean as well. So because his style is so varied and and is a massive range that he's covered now what is it about Hans Zimmer's musical style that you find the most appealing? I'd just say the way that he uses instruments really idiomatically so blending synthesized sounds with more traditional instruments such as vocal or orchestral instrumentation I find that really interesting I also really love how his film music always adds to what's happening on scene on the scene during the scene excuse me but it doesn't take away from what's actually occurring there. No, I completely agree. And I, what I like about Hans Zimmer's style is that it's very, it's bold and it's powerful and it's really, it really does kind of show you what's happening on screen without taking all the limelight, which I, I really like. And it's, it's nuanced, and, but it's also really, really powerful. So what I really want to know is, talking about translations now, is how did you approach these blogs? Was it in a different way to the ones we did for Paul Hindemith last month? Uh, yes, it was. So I decided to watch the scenes from the film that the blogs accompany because I thought that this would give me a greater understanding for the actual English blogs themselves. So did you just watch the scene from the mu- where the, this music is from or did you watch the whole film to prepare? 
So to prepare, I'd already watched both films before and I re-watched them previous to uh, writing the translation. But when it came to the actual translation itself, I watched the scene whilst reading the English blog through to get a better understanding for what you were trying to emphasise within the scene itself. Yeah, that's what I found that really interesting. I think I would do the same if I was to translate um, film music. I would definitely at least watch the scene, but I'd, I definitely would want to prepare and watch the whole film. And actually, both the translations that you chose to do for this month were from battle scenes in the films. Was there any particular reason for this? There was no particular reason for us. Uh, it was definitely a happy coincidence. I really enjoy how, despite them both being from battle scenes, they're just so different and opposing and juxtaposing. Uh, what scenes do your blogs accompany? Well, mine, mine were very different from each other and from yours. Um, the Lion King, um, I wrote about this land, which is a piece of underscore, which is kind of near the end of the film where Mufasa's already died by this point and he's up in the sky, his shadow's in the sky and um, Simba's kind of being told to go and help the pride. And what I really like about the underscore is it's so nuanced, but also right at the end, Hans Zimmer uses African drumming to emphasise the, the urgency of the running and, you know, trying to get back to help people. And I really, really like that. It's probably one of my favourite bits of underscore in the whole film. And then I wrote about He's a Pirate, from Pirates of the Caribbean, which is probably one of the most famous tracks from the film. And it kind of introduces you to Captain Jack Sparrow, all the pirate ships, it sets the scene. Um, so it's kind of the opening of the film. So again, completely different from all the other stuff that we've done. Um, and it just shows Hans Zimmer's really varied style in all the different kind of films that he's been writing music for, I suppose. And so next month, talking about being really varied with our projects, next month we'll be looking into medieval composer St Hildegard von Bingen and her incredible collection of vocal music. And we'll be both faced with translation challenges as I translate from Latin to English and Freya translates from Latin to English and then into German. So how are you feeling about this extra challenge, Freya? I'm looking forward to it. I find her music really, really beautiful and very delicate and something that I'd never really listened to before this project. So I'm looking forward to learning more about her. Brilliant. I'm really excited to be able to finally flex my A-level Latin for the first time since 2013. So I think it's going to be in a really interesting month and some absolutely beautiful music. And Freya will be back with me next month to talk all things St Hildegard and then how we're going to approach writing about Johann Strauss II for January's instalment of the German-speaking Musical Greats Project. Also joining me on this month's podcast is director of the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, Simon Webb. I caught up with him to talk about audiences, programming, film music and more. Joining me on today's podcast is director of the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra, Simon Webb. Uh, me and Simon Webb met uh, not that long ago, actually, earlier this year, when we, were, we appeared on BBC Breakfast together. Um, and we were talking about the sales in classical music, both digital and offline. Um, and so he's with me today to carry on the conversation. So hi, Simon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Alex. It's absolutely brilliant that we've been talking about um, streaming and uh, concert attendance. And I just wondered if you could tell me if you've seen any changes since January 2019. For us, the big change we've seen is in concert attendance, our youth audience, our student audience take, is about 20% of, of our Bridgewater Hall uh, attendance. We're very happy about that. In terms of streaming, uh, our music's available through Shandos and we frankly we don't get the figures for that but what we do know is that they want more and more recordings from us so we can assume it's going well um, 
uh, on BBC Sounds and on Radio 3, figures are pretty steady, around about the 200,000 mark for our broadcasts. And we're happy with that. Uh, we did try live streaming a couple of concerts as well in September with our new chief conductor when Omar Mayor Belba started with us. We did a live stream into schools, primary schools nationally, launching Bring the Noise, a new BBC initiative for four to seven year olds. Um, and then we, we live streamed the concerts the next day on the 13th of September through our website. And that got pretty good international pickup, but international pickup for a live stream of an orchestra, the numbers are not huge. I think what we're looking at is steady, steady numbers, steady increase if it's, if it's good. But the, the big indicator for us is the live, the live attendance. Because we think once, you, once you're hooked into hearing an orchestra live, then you're going to be interested in, in catching them on the radio or on uh, or through a, a streaming service. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And also, I remember we were talking about um, not only just live attendance, but people streaming online and the numbers and the kind of journey you can take on apps such as Spotify of you find a piece you really like or an orchestra. And then do you think that then relates into ticket sales for certain orchestras? I think it does. I think it works two ways. One is that we get a sense of how people are listening and then we can adapt what we do to reach the audience. That's that's one way. But the other way is that people people are fundamentally loyal and people hear something that they like. They want to hear something like it that they can also like. Or they hear a performance or an orchestra or an artist that they like and they want to follow that. In a world of real fragmentation, there's so much... Um, there's so much to choose from if you want to, in, in any walk of life, actually. Uh, there's so much to choose from. People are looking for familiarity, I think, and people are looking for things they can associate with. So if we can hook people in with a piece or an artist or a performance that they that really appeals to them, then yes, I think that it'll help. And the, the way streaming services work, and of course, BBC Sounds, we try to do this as well. We try to identify people's listening habits and the, the genres and the types of music they like and, and take them on that journey or through our social media, just trying to connect people to the music we think they might like. I think that's, it's a very different type of approach to the historical, you know, marketing through a brochure, telling people what you think they're going to like, fairly traditional programming, kind of meat and two veg over to your concerto symphony. That's what you get. That's what you pay for. I think we're in a very different place now where we are, we're, we're responding, we're not being led by the audience, but we're responding to the way audiences are listening to music. And that's very much driven by streaming. That's, that's really interesting to find out about how your audiences are kind of listening to music. And recently, the BBC have um, uh, launched the Notes app, which is yeah. all based around programme notes, very interactive um, on kind of, you could use it on your phone or a tablet or something like that while you're in the concert instead of having a print programme. Could you tell me a little bit about that initiative? Well, th this came from a, a colleague of ours at Salford University, uh, Alan Williams, who's got the brilliant title of Professor of Collaborative Composition which uh, asks loads of questions, which he does a great job of answering. Um, but he said, we were just chatting, and he said, why don't you do a concert series where people are told to leave their phones on? Um, because we were just concerned that we were creating this separate place for concerts where your, your normal day-to-day -day behaviours were excluded, where all the stuff that you'd expect to do at home, on the train, in the cinema, whatever, the only place you were told not to do it was in the concert hall. So we've, we've been experimenting this, with this for about three years, uh, but only this year we've publicly launched it in the Bridgewater Hall. And we're really encouraging people to keep their phones on in certain areas of the hall, not every seat in the hall. We have to be clear about that. We really respect people who want to go to concerts and not see phones. Um, 
But in those areas of the hall, we push live kind of tweet length program notes to the phone so that you get a running commentary on the music. And it might be about the, 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 the instruments that are playing or the melodies you're hearing or the composer or a bit of history, a bit of context. It could be anything. And actually, as we keep developing, because we're the BBC, um, we never sit, really sit still. We keep on developing it. And the idea is that you can have different layers of engagement. So you, it might be traditional sort of program note type thing about, you know, first subject, second subject, this key, that key, whatever. Or it might be a bit of background about the musicians on the stage or about the composer who's written it. And you can choose which level suits you. Um, and the other thing, of course, which we think is really important and, and probably more important in the end is that we attach it to the live broadcast and ultimately attach it to the 30 day or whatever it becomes catch up service on sounds where you can download the music and then you can still have the notes available. So what we're trying to do is tap into the, the culture of how people consume whatever entertainment is interesting to them and, and make sure that orchestral music is available to them in, in the same kind of formats, the same kind of way. Do you think um, by using the notes app, people will listen to music differently? So if they go to a BBC Field concert and say, I go in and I use the notes app, do you think I would listen to the music differently? I, honestly, I think everybody listens to music in their own way. And I, 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 uh, I, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts already and realised <laughs> that um, I listen to music quite differently to other people that I hear talking about it because I don't listen to music as background music, but I have absolute respect for people who do. I find music such a sort of engaging thing. I get quite passionately involved and I find it hard even to have any kind of conversation when there's music in the room. So I think I'm quite unusual like that, but I have no idea. And I think I wouldn't want to dictate how people listen to the music. What I want is for people to be comfortable and free to listen in the way that best suits them. And for me, you know, if I go to... I went to Ligeti's opera, Grand Macabre, a few weeks ago. I couldn't think of anything other than what was going on stage in it. But the people near me might have been thinking about, I don't know, what they're doing, what they're buying in the supermarket the next day. And that's yeah. fine. I don't mind what people, how people listen to music, it doesn't matter. I think you can listen to it. I mean, we also do binaural broadcasts, for example. And that's a whole different way of listening where you have to listen through your headphones. For me, the live music experience is the best thing. For some people, listening to their headphones is the best thing. And so we try to make the best possible sound, sound available for headphone listening. The point for us is to give as much range to the listening experience whilst maintaining the integrity of great performances of great music. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'd, I just want to kind of link into one of the themes of this podcast, which is film music and kind of popular media and music, which we did touch upon, I think, when we, we met on the BBC Breakfast. And because uh, uh, November's Composer of the Month was Hans Zimmer, which was chosen by my German specialist friend, Freya Riding. And we looked into various um, soundtracks like Dunkirk and Pirates of the Caribbean and all some fun stuff like that. And I wonder um, whether people listen to sound film soundtracks differently when there's no film on. So if you go and watch a concert or you sit in a studio and yeah. you're playing it, do you think there's a different way to perceive the music when you've got a screen and when you haven't got a screen? I think so. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm absolutely sure so, actually. Um, because music, film music generally, almost exclusively, is written to a time code for a film. And that's very... So music that's not film music, the structure, the shape, the journey that music takes you on is dictated entirely by the composer's intentions and even for example ballet music played on the concert platform the tempos the speeds that that's played at are generally quite different to how they'll be played in in the theater where there's ballet going on quite often it'll be faster 
in the concert hall, whereas this, mm. it's dictated by the dancers in the ballet. So I think that when you take film music away from the film and play it in the concert hall, you're dependent on the musical structure. You're not at all dependent on the visual, the film structure. That's a very, very different thing. Um, also, the way that the film is, is constructed is so piecemeal. I mean, some composers that the, the John Williams of this world do write in a kind of symphonic style, but others, like Howard Shaw, writes in tiny, tiny cues all the time. And then you get films which are just all music. Well, that's not constructed as a thought through score. So if you play that score as written for the film in the concert hall, it's a very odd experience. Mm, it needs yeah. to be kind of rewritten. Yeah, I, I can imagine. It's, it's very different. I think I've been to concerts with both. So concerts that have the screen and we've got an orchestra playing along. I went to a Jurassic Park one, yeah. which was amazing. Really, really enjoyed that. And I've also been to ones where it's been uh, Star Wars, but yeah. with no screen. It's just like mashups and melodies and stuff. Do you think it's it's one of those things that is unlocking new audiences to kind of taste a bit of classical music and go, oh, I didn't realise, you know, the concert yeah. platform can be used for stuff like this as well? I think possibly. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm slightly sceptical about whether it unlocks the whole kind of access to orchestral music. I think I kind of see it slightly the other way, which is it is all orchestral music. And I don't mind if somebody goes to a film music concert or a Queen tribute concert with full orchestra or Hacienda concert or whatever it is, that's brilliant. I'm not expecting them to come a few days later to hear a Bruckner symphony. I think that would be quite a, 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 a significant transition. You know, you don't necessarily expect the person who reads Harry Potter the next day to pick up a to pick up Geoffrey Chaucer and have the same experience. That's know? very true. And so I don't I don't I don't worry too much about whether that audience transitions from one to the other. I think the thing that really interests me is that a people are listening to orchestras full stop and they don't always realise it. And you put it in the con- you put a film score in a concert, and people have the full orchestral experience. That visceral, physical experience of being in the same room as an orchestra is something extraordinary. And if that's what people are experiencing, then I'm very, very happy. It doesn't. I don't mind what the music is at all. That doesn't matter to me at all. Um, but the other thing it's doing, it's keeping orchestras alive. You know, if you if you're one of our, you know. We love these other orchestras, the CBSO, the Halle, the Liverpool Phil. They do these great concerts of film music, and that that really helps them stay afloat. It's like theatres that do panto. If they don't do their panto, they can't do Hamlet. You know, yeah. and it's the same with orchestras. If you don't have that, the real popular sell at the hall, then you're not able to do your Bruckners and your Mahlers, which are expensive and not everybody turns up to. But it's really important we don't we don't make too much distinction between the two. We don't have to think that it's the audiences have to translate from one to the other. It's all legitimate, it's all good, and let's just be happy that people are hearing orchestras and orchestras are here and thriving because it's such an important part of our culture, whether it comes from film or wherever. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely agree with that. And and also trying to get young people involved in classical music and giving them that yeah. platform to be able to go to concerts through various schemes, um, whether that be the BBC Phil or the Halle or anything like that. Um, and it's really important. I think film music in particular and potentially even game music, video game music yeah. would be another great way to kind of go, oh, I know that from X, yeah. Y and Z. And they would go and they'd be able to actually enjoy that and take that journey. And hopefully yeah. that would then transition into orchestras getting various audiences for, ver- you know, different things. That's exactly right. And I think if you look at, I'm a great lover of Radio 3, as you can imagine, apart from the fact they, they pay my wages and pay my <laughs> wages. I'm a great lover of Radio 3. I think it's it's a really fabulous radio station. But if you look, for me, the I mean, the most popular stuff on that, things like the Breakfast Show, Central Classics, and the orchestras in the afternoon, those are the places that people are going to listen, a lot of orchestral music. But if you look at the most fascinating programmes, it's stuff like Unclassified, 
on night tracks where totally new audiences are coming in. And what Elizabeth Alka is doing on Unclassified is just ignoring the very idea of there being boundaries between different genres and different art forms, just saying this is all great music. And that's, if you talk to pretty much any orchestral musician or anyone running an orchestra, that is the view we would all take, mm. that there are no boundaries. This is great music. We will we make judgments about what's great music, what's not. We look at what people are listening to and we try to understand where our role is in, with that, in that. But actually, the really interesting stuff has always been stuff like the unclassified stuff, where or Nick Kenyon's programme about early music now. You mm. know, there's a there's brilliant discussion going on about a massive range of music, and that's the music being programmed, and it all has audiences. And I don't think it's for us to worry too much about whether those you know who those audiences are particularly. There are a lot of younger audiences who are excited about the live experience or the broadcast experience, the online experience of orchestral music. And our job running orchestras is always to try to ensure that we're providing stuff for people to listen to, whether we're commissioning it or giving them different formats to listen to it in, different concert formats, different types of programmes on, on radio. And that's it's great. It's an exciting place to be. Yeah, it seems like the, the programming for the BBC Phil is really exciting, especially this year. I've seen quite a lot of um, really varied programmes from kind of your, your lollipop concerts of yeah. stuff that people would, you know, they know it and they want to go and see it, but also some more experimental concerts. Uh, how important do you think it is to, to do a real even keel of both? I, for me, that's what I love about working at the BBC. Is it, it kind of chimes completely with my view, which is you have to you have to be able to do it all, and then you have to pick a way through that you believe has I believe has real artistic integrity. So yes, we did Calaviaho's Termin Concerto the other day. Quite surprised a lot of people. What a wonderful piece still available on BBC Sounds uh, at the time <laughs> of making this podcast. But at the same time, on the way home uh, on the radio just today, I was listening to our broadcast of Schumann Three from Paris on tour, absolutely nailed on classic programme. We were recording Malcolm Arnold this week in the studio and um, next week we've got uh, Sophia Gubaidulina's Triple Concerto, UK premiere. There's a massive mash of different styles and different types of music. And that is exactly right. It's so important that we do that. And it's so important we collaborate with artists from different genres and we explore different musical ideas. And we, you know, we were with Gwilym Simcock a, a month or two ago at the Royal Northern College of Music, working with students and saying jazz is absolutely central to our musical offer. Um, there's, a, there's a Rachel Portman film coming out on Boxing Day, which we did the soundtrack for with Michael Morpogo. All of this stuff is the lifeblood of orchestras. All of it is about audiences. Uh, and all of it is, is a way for people to to kind of tap into this rich theme of, of, of orchestral life. But yeah, the range of programming is, is a wonderful thing to be able to do uh, with, with an orchestra to really challenge people to listen to some quite tough music as well. It's not always easy. No, absolutely. And BBC Phil do lots of recordings, don't you, in your studio. Yeah. You've got a lovely purpose-built studio, um, which you gave me a tour of yeah. earlier this year, which was brilliant. Um, and so I, what I want to know is, um, in terms of recording, how... How do you kind of go about it? How do you approach learning a new score? Do, you know, yeah. is it is something that's picked for them to record? How how does that? How, what's the process of that? Well, it, there are there's no there, there's no really easy answer. Um, we have partners. We work in partnership. Whatever we're doing. So, for example, a lot of our discs, CDs, we still make CDs are made for Shandos, but we've also just made one for Hyperion. And there, but Shandos is the really long-standing relationship, and we made hundreds, literally hundreds, of recordings for them. And we have a long conversation going over years with them. So I saw Ralph Cousins, who runs Shandos, I saw him yesterday. And we talked through all the projects we've got coming up over the next three or four years, all the stuff he wants, all the stuff that interests us. 
and we just find those projects which work for both of us and we record that for Radio 3 and for Shandos so that also dictates to some extent what the Radio 3 audience get from us. In terms of the studio concerts just to Radio 3, uh, my producer Mike and I talk to the Radio 3 editors, we talk to the controller of Radio 3, we talk to the proms, we talk to the other BBC orchestras, talk also to the Halle and to the Bridgewater Hall because we're working with them and we want a complimentary offer and out of all that comes a programme for each week or two programmes quite often for each week um, and it's it's complicated, but that's part of the joy of it. If it was easy, yeah. you know, um, it wouldn't be so interesting. But it's a, it's, a, it's a constant negotiation with artists, with promoters, with recording companies, with broadcasters, uh, with our own musicians as well. A lot of talk mm. with our own musicians about what they want to do, what's the identity of the orchestra. You know, we're going to do a little bit more uh, Bruckner. We're going to do a lot more Haydn. Mm. Um, we're looking at Zemlinsky. We're doing a bit more Schoenberg and Berg, uh, you know, and... These are, you'd have a very different conversation if you spoke to the Halle about this, because I did exactly that yesterday. And I said, here are the composers we're thinking of focusing on exploring. And they were clear that that was absolutely fine, because they're not the composers <laughs> they're going to be looking mm. at. And, you know, so every orchestra does it its own way for its own reason. And so with these recordings, because there's, there's so many of them, how, how important do you think the physical CDs are? That's a really good question. The CD market, as we know, because we talked about it on the <laughs> Breakfast, is surprisingly resilient and growing. And um, I mean, it does take something like 5,000 sales for a CD to break even. But I can see that the companies like Shandos are doing well. And, the, you know, some of their CDs take a few years to reach those numbers and some of them reach them very quickly. But we'll have recorded seven discs for them this year. Um, oh. which is, I think, quite a lot. And that's kind of as many as we've recorded ever, as far as I can tell. And yeah. they're happy to record more if we've got the repertoire and the time to do it. So I think the market must be buoyant because nobody would be putting money into this and paying the orchestra, because we are paid to do it. You know, we, we take income, it saves you, our licence fee payer, money <laughs> for us recording these discs because it, it brings in money to the BBC. So this is a really important equation. Um, but you've got things like you know, Halle recording live, LPO recording live, just appointed Ed Gardner, he'll be doing, I'm sure, a load of live recordings with them. Um, there's a lot of CDs coming out. The, the market must be all right, mm. because otherwise we'd stop doing it. Yeah, well, exactly. And I know because you guys do a, a really good mix of recordings and also uh, concerts as well. So you do concerts at different times of day. So you've got evening yeah. concerts, you've got lunchtime series as well going on. Well, it's two o'clock. Two o'clock, late lunch. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the, the afternoon concert on Radio 3 starts at two o'clock. Mm. So we publicise them at one fifty-five. so everybody's sat down and ready. And then we're live on air with Tom McKinney, of course, who does Music in the Round. Yes, I know Tom. So he, was, uh, he was hosting our live broadcast yesterday on, on Radio 3 and uh, other other people, some also called Tom. Uh, but we, yeah, we do quite a lot of um, afternoon studio concerts because that's where our audience is on air and, and also they're free. They, mm. If through BBC shows and tours, we do, it's an open ballot and always full, great atmosphere. It's an interesting experience for an orchestra as well. A lot of conductors come through and they say, oh, I'm not used to working in the afternoons. So I tell them to think of the evening and how much time they've got to go for dinner after. Yeah. Uh, but, or go home or whatever they need to do. But, but it's a, it's a, there's a lot of energy mm. in an orchestra in an afternoon. And more that's and more true. orchestras are doing afternoon concerts. Oh, that's really exciting. I think it's great to have different times of day. So it's not just a 
potentially yeah. formal evening. It's you get yeah. to choose between various times of day for different kinds of people and young people yeah. who might be off uni students potentially, especially if you did music. Less contact <laughs> time than most. I went to quite a lot of concerts when I was doing when I was at uni. Um, so, um, so how about some upcoming concerts for the BBC Phil? What are your programmes looking like? The usual big range of stuff. We've got uh, Sophia Gubadulina, uh, Triple Concerto in Brooklyn 7, coming up on tomorrow week, 14th of December. Uh, we've got Ben Haim's First Symphony in the, in the studio, which we're going to uh, record for disc as well. We just did Ruth Gipps' Third Symphony yesterday. That's coming up for disc as well. We're going to record that as well. We've got our Christmas concert for Radio Manchester. That's always a highlight of our year, where we do a concert just for Radio Manchester. Two of their presenters goes out on Christmas Day, Boxing Day on, on Radio Manchester and connects us to our local audience in the northwest there. Then the new year comes around, we, we go on the road again. So we've got all our usual Manchester and Salford concerts. We come to Sheffield. We're sitting here in Sheffield talking. We're two Sheffield folk. And um, uh, I think it's February, I think the 20th, uh, we're at the City Hall on a Friday doing Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique, hosted by Andrew McGregor. So he'll be presenting it, Ben Jernan conducting. That would be a really good concert. But we're also going to be in Leeds doing the world premiere of Eddie Gregson's new oboe concerto with our brilliant principal oboe. Um, Jenny Galloway uh, will be doing, we'll be back in Stoke-on-Trent. We go there four times a year. Um, and Nottingham we go to a little bit. So there's all sorts of concerts coming up. Uh, but um, I can't always remember the programmes. So <laughs> well, it's a nice surprise then, isn't it? My head's more in kind of 2021 season, even 21-22. So wow. we're busy planning mm. recordings, proms, Bridgewater Hall. Have you got any kind of big tours coming up, European or international? Yeah, well, we've just come back from a seven-concert tour of Europe uh, in October, um, and then we're going off to Dresden. So Omer, our new conductor, has a role at Dresden Opera, so he's taking us to the festival there. And we're playing Schnitka and Vorjak and Strauss and Shostakovich, Beethoven in Dresden, and then two other smaller cities, uh, Saarlouis and Erlangen in Germany. And then we go back to Germany again in 2021, um, for another tour with Oma, which isn't announced yet, so I can't tell you about that. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> All sorts of those plans in the, in the pipeline. Excellent. Yes. Oh, that's really exciting. Uh, what about kind of commissioning new work? So you've got anything yeah. more exciting in, in the pipeline that you're allowed to tell me? <laughs> well, uh, this season we've got a... So we close the season with a new concerto by Tom Coult, who trained at Manchester University, you may know him, I don't know, a uh, brilliant young composer. Uh, and we've commissioned a concerto from him for a violinist called Daniel Pioro, who's also a very exciting young British violinist. And it's to mark the opening of the Royal Horticultural Society Garden in Salford. So one of my other passions is gardening. And when they said the RHS are bringing a garden to Salford, I couldn't quite contain my excitement. So I just <laughs> went in there and said, let's commission a concerto. Again, University of Salford are on board. They're co-commissioning it. And University of Salford do a lot of work around environmentalism. And so Philip James, a professor there, has just, we just had a lot of conversations together and we decided to commission to this work, Radio 3 and University of Salford, to mark the opening of this garden and a real shift in the RHS's outlook uh, around what gardens are for and community gardening, engaging communities, which fits absolutely with what we do as an orchestra. So that, as you can tell, is quite an exciting commission Very. for me. We've also got a co-commission with Leipzig Gewandhaus and with Stockholm... Uh, and, and ourselves with a piece by Elamil Sharif, uh, which we haven't announced when it's been performed yet, but that's about Beethoven. It connects to Beethoven. So that's being premiered in February, in uh, mm. the day after we're in Sheffield. Brilliant. <laughs> it's being premiered in Leipzig. Um, so not by us, but by our conductor. So we'll br bring that to a concert hall 
mm-hmm. yet to be announced in uh, later later this year, actually. So, um, yeah, that's an exciting commission. New composers. Great. And, and going flip on the other side, have the BBC Phil got anything in store for Beethoven 250 next well, we year? we have. We've got a, one of our legendary collaborations with the Halle. So the way we work with the Halle is we just talk a lot and we get on very well and we try to do things together. So I mentioned Mimi and the Mandarin Dragon. That's a BBC Philharmonic soundtrack with the Halle choirs singing on it. So we, we work together with them a lot. Um, and we're sharing a Beethoven cycle where we're doing the symphonies and the major, well, more than the major choral works, pretty much all, almost all the choral works. And, but what we're also doing is swapping conductors. So Mark Elder, we went for a beer with Mark. And of course said, you did. I've got Beethoven 6. Well, the thing is, Mark, uh, Mark has known the BBC Philharmonic longer than he's known the Halle. And I've known Mark longer than he's known the Halle. So I used to work with him when I was in the LPO a long time ago. And um, so we, 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 we rub along very well. And, and he said, he said oh, I've done Beethoven 6 so often with the Halle. I said, well, come back and do it with us. So we're doing Beethoven 6 with Mark. And Ben Jernan, our brilliant young chief, uh, uh, principal guest conductor, get the title right, principal <laughs> guest conductor, is conducting Beethoven 8 with the Halle. So that's a really nice Oh, that's lovely. Swap. Uh, and there's a lovely personal connection there. Uh, Ben's wife is a very good friend of the planning manager at the Halle. So there's a really nice connection there um, from uh, from their home in Aberdeen, I think. So it's really nice when we can do stuff like that. We can actually really mesh the history of the two orchestras, the programming of the two orchestras, all those personal connections, which always in our business go back many, many years. And it's just a lovely thing to be able to mm. do. And the Halle will be really interested to hear how Mark does Beethoven 6 with us and I'm sure we'll be very interested to hear how, how Ben does Beethoven 8 because actually Ben came to us on the back of a brilliant eroica absolutely mm. brilliant in Sheffield City Hall oh brilliant so he did it here and I basically my office door if I had one it's all open plan my office door was battered <laughs> down with players saying give him a job mm. and so I did and that was on the back of a Beethoven oh fantastic uh, eroica at the City Hall here well, we, well, I think the Halle are coming to City Hall in March to do Beethoven 5 with Great. Sir Mark, so that we've got that to look forward to in Sheffield. Yeah. But that's really exciting. Can we expect BBC Phil at the proms? Always, yeah. Oh, excellent. We're always at the proms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We always do at least four. Uh, I'd be surprised if you said you weren't, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very worried if we weren't. So yeah. I'd be having words. But we, we were, uh, Mike, my producer and I were in London on Monday uh, and we spent an hour with the proms team cooking up some pretty exciting plans, which I can't yet tell you about. Oh. <laughs> However, uh, the BBC Philharmonic programmes, wherever they are, but particularly at the proms, we tend to go in and say, look, we kind of dare you to do exciting stuff. So last season, we had this bizarre day when Omer and I were planning his first proms, ready to go in to talk to the proms planning team. And he said, I need Haydn. And I said, let's pitch in the creation. And he said, and then we were knocking ideas around and we both thought that Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces should be played at the proms and should be played by us and thought they wouldn't go anywhere near it. And we went in and pitched in the creation and they said yes, straight away. So that was really exciting. And then they said, there's one piece you won't want to do. No, it's really tough. You wouldn't consider doing Schoenberg's five orchestral pieces, would you? So we did it and it was in the proms last season. So we always go in and, and kind of solve, we try to solve problems for the proms. We try to do really interesting repertoire. We try to challenge the audience and take something of, I would say Manchester's the most radical city and that's our home. And uh, we try to say something really radical. Yeah. Wherever we go. So look out for our proms next season. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, um, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Simon. I've, we've had a really lovely time having a chat about all sorts of stuff, actually. You have to listen to podcasts to find out if you've got this far. You've probably listened to it. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's great to get in the know a bit more about the BBC Phil and what you guys have got planned and coming up. So thanks again. 
Absolute pleasure. Loved it. Thanks for coming around. So how do you listen to music? I'd like to thank Simon Webb and Freya Riding for joining me on this podcast, Ross Davidson for mastering the podcast, and Ben Gaunt for composing the brand new Classical Alex Burns jingle. You've been listening to episode three of Conversations with a Musicologist. Keep up to date with the Classical Alex Burns 365 Challenge by visiting the website, and remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a beat. Bye.